If you're a parent, you probably had this sensation of absolute adrenaline surge and panic when you discover that one of your kids is missing, right? I mean, this is for Karina and I, this has happened on far more occasions than I could ever remember. Some of them I want to forget. I mean, you're out there shopping or you're at the fair. We've got four kids, so I actually think in terms of percentage. Uh, so, like, I, you know, I know where 50% of my children are or 25%. And I really hope that Karina knows where 100% of our children are. But we've had occasions where all of a sudden, what? I thought you had them. What? I'm in charge? No, no, never. Okay. And you're like looking for them. And I've stood in front of stores and like with the idea that no one's leaving the store till I find my kid. Because, I mean, you're not going to move forward until you have your kids in the place where they need to be. That's just kind of how it works. Uh, years ago... When we were actually living in Portland, Oregon, we were going to fly out here. We were interviewing uh, with Fellowship Bible Church, and um, we we're scrambling, trying to get everything packed up. And like, where's Austin? And like, no one knows. I don't know where he's at. Karina doesn't know. Karina's mother lived not very far from us. She's there. The mother-in-law doesn't know where he's at. I'm like, what? And we're already running a little behind. And I'm like, we're not leaving here until we find him, right? I mean, I don't care if we're late. I don't care if we miss the flight or if I have to drive the maximum speed limit to get across Portland to get to the airport, whatever it takes. We're not leaving until we find him. So we go through the house, can't find him. I decide it's a good time to do some wind sprints in the street. So I do, and I'm running around looking for him. I can't find him. I run up our hill and down, and lo and behold, there's our little two-and-a-half-year-old, and he's on our normal walking path that we walk. I don't know if he decided he needed some fresh air or to stretch his legs before he goes to grandma's, whatever, but there he was. You know, So we get him. And then we're free to go. And that's kind of how it works in life. You see, if we uh, have misplaced our keys, or we can't find our wallet, or we don't know where our phone is, or we're not sure exactly where our kids are, we generally don't move forward until those things are in place. Isn't that how that works? That's true of all of us. There's just one glaring exception. We have a tendency to just keep moving forward in life, even though we have lost our focus on God. We treat God as, well, you know, he's good and all great, but he's kind of an optional accessory. Nice, but not necessary. And friends, I want you to know that that is a huge problem. I believe that I am on a lifelong course in understanding what the Christ-centered life looks like. And I imagine that you are in the same boat as well. We have a tendency to forget God. And what James is addressing is that this is a critical problem if you and I are going to mature in Christ. Why is it that we forget God in the details and even the big decisions of life? Why is that true? Why, why do we do that? Well, I'll give you a couple reasons. One, uh, that is how we lived before we were a Christian. My default setting, your default setting is to be self-occupied and self-centered. You just move forward because you don't know God, so why would you actually consult Him? You need to understand that is your default setting. And as we walk through this, you might discover I might be in default a lot more than I think. You see, prior to putting your faith and trust in Christ, you thought you were the ultimate end to life. And you made all your decisions based upon whatever you thought was best or best in the moment. There's another reason why you and I... um, have a tendency to forget God and the decisions and even the big decisions of life. And that is because of pride. We like to be self-sufficient. We live in a culture that reinforces this. 
And we often do not consult others. We don't consult wise people. And we don't consult God. We just move forward. And what James is doing, he is like a physician of the soul. And he's taking his stethoscope. And he's placed it right here on the heart of the early church. And he detects that there is a hardening of the arteries, the spiritual arteries. Life isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so, under the, the moving of the Holy Spirit, God is going to address this major obstacle to a growing and maturing faith in Christ. And that is, we have a tendency to forget God when it comes to the details and the decisions of life. As we get in here, I just want to ask you a question. Are you forgetting God in your presence pursuits? Let's take a look. James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Verse 14. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And so James says, let me give you a real good example, an illustration. Uh, there were successful businessmen and women uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, just like there are today. They were merchants. They were itinerant merchants. They moved throughout. They made calculations. They made decisions. They looked at opportunities. They evaluated what's going to cost, what kind of resources are going to be needed, how much labor, how is this all going to work out, and what kind of profit I could expect. That is normal business back then, just like it is now. And I want you to know something. James does not condemn wise business planning. You go to the book of Proverbs and it reinforces you do want to think this through. You want to engage wisely. And if you're running a business or you're managing some people, I would encourage you, you want to think it through. Plan well. Process well. But there's just one glaring uh, exception here when you come to verse 13 with all their statements. Anybody see what's missing in verse 13? God. He's not there. He's not in consideration. No one's thinking about him. It's certainly... What God might want or him, him involved, he's not there. Friends, this is a major problem in the early church, and I got suspicions it's a problem in today's church. It's the idea that we are practical atheists. Oh, yeah, we believe in Jesus, and we understand a little bit of theology, and we're, we're going to worship him from time to time when it's convenient, of course. But when it comes to day-in and day-out decisions, big decisions, life-changing decisions— we just kind of make it on our own. We are practical atheists. You make decisions, you plan for the future, and you live as if God doesn't exist. And so what happens is you're self-sufficient. You take control. And when things work out, you don't ever acknowledge God because, after all, you're calling the shots. And so we see that people make practical decisions about education, jobs, job changes, moving, investment, spending, and you do it all without prayer. Let me tell you the problem with that. You see, first of all, uh, God has a prior claim on your life. Did you know that? Did you know that God created you? He created you, and he's created you for the purpose that you know him, 
you enjoy him, you love him, and you experience him. I mean, come on, let's just think. Let's take our brain, process, look at your body, look at the amazing design and all that it can do. That design speaks of a designer. You are created by God to know him, to experience him. He's got ownership on your life. But second of all, if you are a Christian, that means that you recognize, indeed, I'm a sinner. I make mistakes. I got issues. I live a self-centered life. I am a failure in terms of what God designed me to be. I'm a sinner. And I now believe in Jesus as the one and only Savior of sins. I believe in him. I'm forgiven and I've got life. If you're a Christian, that means you've been redeemed. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, what? Anybody know? Glorify God in your body. You've been redeemed. You've been purchased. You now belong to him. God owns you. He created you and he has saved you. And that means he's got priority in our life. And what's missing is that they're not consulting God. You see, this is something that's so prevalent in American Christianity of moving forward without ever consulting God. It's as if God is so sovereign that he's actually had our national motto put on our money. Does anybody know what it is, national motto? Oh, yeah. In God, we trust. It's as if God knew American Christians are going to be so prone to trust in money as their God. I will have to put it on their money so they'll never forget me. And yet we do. You see, it's on our national motto so that we do not mistake money for our God. And that is the problem, though. We have. We make a lot of I will, I will, I'll do this, I'm going to do this or that. You know, it's interesting. Do you know who in Scripture makes a lot of I will, I will statements? Actually, Satan does. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 through 15, there is this divine dirge that actually speaks to the king of Babylon. God addresses through the prophet Isaiah, the king of Babylon, and to the devil who actually energizes him. And it's really, you see Satan's prideful orientation as as if God is addressing Satan because of his mindset and what Satan says. So listen to this, Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 13. But you said in your heart, so here's God addressing Satan. I will ascend to heaven. That's what Satan says. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. And I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and i will make myself like the most high and notice some common statements there i i i right and yet nevertheless you will be thrust down to sheol to the recesses of the pit friends making all these i will do this or that apart from seeking god's will and trusting in him that is sin in fact he goes on to say verse 14 yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow who are you you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away you you don't even know what's going to work out you don't even know what you're like you are like a vapor like a puff of smoke or like uh, like referred to like you could see your breath in cold water so like not in texas but like imagine you living in north dakota horrid thought i know but you go outside and go (laughs) and you see your breath and then it's there and then it's away that's what your life is like you're just a dot on an eternal line you do not know how it's all going to work out there was a traditional prayer that said lord i know i don't know what the future holds but i'm glad i know that you hold the future 
And that's how it is. Come on now. I, yes, I know you're smart and you're educated. But do you really think that you understand the complex matrix of forces and events and people and contingencies and circumstances in which you have little or absolutely no control? You really can't be making all these prideful statements about what you will or will not do. You're just like steam rising from your coffee. You see it, then now you don't. And so he says in verse 15, let me tell you what you should be saying. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. You see, you have God at the center of your life. That is our position of strength. If the Lord wills, we're far more interested in what God wills than what we want. John Wesley gave us this great statement. Realizing the future is uncertain not only teaches us to trust in God, it helps us to properly value the present. To be obsessed with future plans may work our failure to appreciate present blessings or evasion of present duties. So what he's saying here in verse 15, it's more than just kind of a ho-hum, you know, God willing. No, this is an active trusting God. And some people kind of like a little filler phrase, you know, Lord willing. But you know, you can say that and not mean it, right? No, he's saying, I want you to engage me. I want you to seek my will. I want your orientation to be a Christ-centered one. This weekend, I've got a good friend of mine, and he is making a decision that's going to have major implications for him and his family. And yesterday morning when I was praying for him, I sent him a text. And that text is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Do you know it? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And you know what? He will make your path straight. It's you, me. We trust in the Lord with our whole heart. I mean, think of it. God is all wise, all knowing. All-powerful. He loves us unconditionally, and he's calling us, I want you to live in the middle of my love and be in the center of my will. That's how I want you to live. But what happens is there are Christians, and maybe you've been there, where you're like, I don't really want to maybe even be in God's will. I mean, God's will could be scary. I mean, after all, there's some people that say, you know, like, I, uh, I would like to give my life to the Lord and be in his will, but I'm a little afraid. What are you afraid of? Well, I'm afraid that like God's will might be dangerous or it, it might call me to do something difficult. I'm not sure I really want to do that. I want it safe. And you know what? That's true. God may very well call you to do things that are difficult or even dangerous. But I will tell you this. The dangerous life is not in the will of God, but out of the will of God. That's where it's dangerous. You see, the safest place in the world is to be right where God wants you. And so what he's saying is, listen, you want to yield to me. Trust in the Lord. Lord, what do you want? What is your will in the matter? Um, now, some of you, and I can see it on your faces, you're like, oh man, I've never even read this before. I have spent my whole life, even as a Christian, pretty much making my own decisions. Made sense to me. Have I messed it up eternally? I've got news for you. Yeah? You may have some consequences for some of your decisions. And you may be presently facing those or dealing with them. 
But God wants you to know his love. He wants you to know his forgiveness. And he wants you to know his will. That's why he has verses like 1 John 1, 9. Listen, if you confess your sins. You missed it. That's what sin means. Missed the mark. You confess your sins. I forgive you. I am faithful to forgive you. I want you to know the goodness of trusting me. Let's see what I will do in your situation. But let's start walking in my will now. Huh? So that's what God does. And friends, there are so many benefits of just seeking and being in God's will. I mean, there's, there's just a much deeper fellowship with God when you say, God, not my will, but yours be done here. I mean, if you see people and you're like, man, they have such a rich relationship with Jesus and mine is kind of like superficial, not very strong. Are you actually seeking his will? That's so important. I mean, another benefit is that you see prayers answered. You're like, God, I, I, you pray what the, like the prayers of the Bible, not just for things, but really more important that God develops character and works in hearts and advances the gospel and helps people mature in Christ. And you see God answering these prayers. And furthermore, there's the expectation of reward that when Jesus comes back, you've been trusting him all along and you've been seeking his will. Real interesting, you know, 100 years ago and prior, you may have seen this. If you ever like in a museum or you see like old letters, there's a little postscript and it's a D period, D period. And even like kings would, uh, that, that really were believers in Christ would write D period, D period on there. And let me just tell you where that's from. It's, it's Latin for Deo Volente. It literally means if the Lord wills or God willing. Deo Volente. And that's why they wrote it. Christians who believed, who really believed in God and wanted his will, they made it a pattern, and maybe it would be a good one to start again. D.B., Deo Valente, Lord willing to whatever they're writing. That's our heart. We want to be in the center of God's will. I think uh, most of you are familiar with H-E-B, right? And I don't want you to be thinking about food right now, but okay. Stick with me. Howard E. Butts, H-E-B, okay? For some of you like, oh, is that where it came from? Yeah. He, uh, Howard E. Butts Sr. is the one who took the family grocery store and made it. Uh, it's actually the largest pu- privately hold, held company in the state of Texas. It's one of the major food chains in the United States. He was a, Howard E. Butts uh, was a Christian businessman and had strong Christian principles and, and very much wanted this Christ-centered life. And he was also very successful. He wrote an article, that's a great title, The Art of Being a Big Shot. (laughs) The Art of Being a Big Shot. And it's as if he wrote this article having been reading and just meditating upon James 4, 13 through 17. Let me just read you an excerpt. This is what Howard E. Butt wrote. It is my pride that makes me independent of God. It's appealing to me to feel that I... And the master of my fate, that I run my own life, call my own shots, and go it alone. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. I can't go it alone. I have to get help from other people. And I can't ultimately rely on myself. I'm dependent on God for my next breath. It is dishonest of me to pretend that I'm anything but a man, small, weak, and limited. So living independent of God is self-delusion. It is not just a matter of pride, being an unfortunate little trait, and humility, being an attractive little virtue. It's my inner psychological integrity that's at stake. When I am conceited, 
I am lying to myself about what I am. And then listen to this. I am pretending to be God and not man. My pride is the idolatrous worship of myself. And that is the national religion of hell. Pretty powerful. God used him mightily. And he was successful in business. I don't want you to get the idea that, well, okay, God, I'm seeking your will and I'm going to be this major success uh, financially. That may be true, but that may not be true. That's actually not the issue. The issue is, are you in the center of his will and seeking his will? So how do Christians actually discern God's will? Uh, is there anybody here that's actually interested in that? Not real? Oh, there were, because if not, I thought I'd just pass up. There. Oh, there are? You are interested in God's will and how to discern that? Let me, let me give you a great text on that. You might want to write this down. You can look at it. We're going to talk about it for a couple of minutes. Psalm 37, verses 3 through 5. This week with one of the guys I was discipling, uh, he asked me a question related to God's will and calling on a life. And I, I want you to know that we do want to know God's will for our lives. We've got career decisions, like who to marry, should we marry, educational choices, family decisions, next steps. How do you discern God's will in your life? Let me give you this excellent passage, Psalm 37, verses 3 through 5. We'll read it. We'll talk about it for a minute. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. So how do you, you and I discern God's will? First of all, just notice what he was saying there in verse 3 in Psalm 37. There is trusting in God. It's active, not passive. There is a willingness to go God's will. That means that we come to him with humility and earnestly in prayer. Lord, I am trusting in you. I want what you want. Okay? You're going against the self-centered orientation because you're now pursuing a Christ-centered one. So there's a trusting in God. Second of all, you also see that in verse 3. There is a cultivating faithfulness, both to him and his word. So did you see that? He says, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness faithfulness. So you're believing in God. You're trusting in his word. You're growing, you're reading, you're understanding. You are growing and maturing. It's not that you know everything, but there's an orientation and there is truly movement where you're cultivating faithfulness in your life. By the way, you will always know this, that God's will is always in harmony with God's word. God's will is always in harmony with God's word. So for instance, God tells us his will in many places, like 1 Thessalonians 4.3. He says, abstain from sexual immorality. He tells us his will to love one another, to, to love your spouse, your family, to forgive, to, live, to not live beyond your means, to, to serve Christ, to give generously. These are things that he tells us in his word, and so we're cultivating faithfulness. And third, if you want to know God's will, look how God shapes your desires. Did you see that? He's saying... Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, it's not that you get what you want, but that as you're seeking God, God starts shaping your desires. Instead of it being all about you and like, I want this or that, like usually it's about material stuff, right? What happens is God starts shaping your heart to start beating with his heart, and your desires start to become his desires, and these are the things you pray for, and these are the things that are in God's will, and he starts providing. That means that you are conforming to God's will. You place, he places in our heart desires, and we look to him. 
But these desires and these interests that you have, these are important. If you're cultivating faithfulness, you're trusting the Lord, and God's giving you desires and interests, these things are very important. They're matters of prayer because God very well may be directing. You are fully God's woman or fully God's man, and he's directing your ship. That's how he works. So you look at these desires. And finally, like he says in verse 5, you commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he will do it. You are walking forward by faith. You understand that God can guide my steps. He opens doors, and he closes doors. And he does that. You see, what? if you're trusting in God, you're cultivating faithfulness. There is an orientation, a Christ-centered orientation. I want your will. God's going to direct you. There will be times that doors will open. If you're trusting in him, cultivating faithfulness, he opens a door. It is a desire of yours. Why not walk through it? I can assure you, God is fully capable of closing any door. And sometimes he does that. You know, like, man, I really think this is what God wants me to do. And you take that step forward, and all of a sudden, the door is closed. Like, hey, what's up with that? I'll tell you what's going on. God is training you to be faithful, to follow him. If you want an example of this, just look at the people of Israel. And when they went from Egypt to the promised land, you know, they could have made it in a week. There was a straight line, but God trained them. You follow me. We're going to do this in zigzag style. We're going to stop and go and stop and go. And you are going to learn to follow me. And after all, that's what we want. God, I want your will and I want to follow you. And that's what happens. Through the twists and the turns of life, our desire is that we go in God's will. And so we're trusting God. We're, we're seeking him to do his work. But there's a problem. Apparently, some folks weren't doing that. So verse 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. You have forgotten me. You are leaving me out. You remember what we learned last week? James 4, 6. Anybody memorize it? Some of you have instantly memorized because you just looked down, right? But it says, God gives you greater grace, right? For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to arrogance, the proud, but he gives grace to those who just are coming before him in humility. You see, when a person is boasting about all the things that they're doing, all it's doing is covering up their weakness. They don't have a healthy trust in God. Friends, one of the, some of the most dangerous moments in our life are when our plans succeed. What happens when our plans succeed? We're not really seeking God. Whether you're a Christian or not, the reason it's dangerous is because pride brings about a hardening of the heart, and you actually think that you did it. And it's setting your course of life in the complete wrong direction. If you want a, and a great example of what this kind of pride looks like, where you succeed in things that you think you're doing, go to the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 4. You've got the situation where Daniel is interfacing with King Nebuchadnezzar. And in King Nebuchadnezzar, in his great moment of success, I mean, Babylon the Great, the greatest empire in the world up to that time. And he is walking on his palace, and he's looking around at all that he's created and taking all in. And it's like, it's worked out even better than I thought. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's saying to himself, and it's reflecting, and Daniel actually records, the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. He's all taking it in. Oh, this feels so good. I've done it. But you know, Daniel had told King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar that 
pride is going to be your downfall. And he warned him of it. And immediately, when the king made that statement, this is what took place. Daniel records it. The prophecy was fulfilled exactly. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And you find out as you keep reading that he became a resident in his own state park for seven years. Can you imagine that condition? But you just keep reading. And Nebuchadnezzar then gives his testimony. And he does so actually in the international trade language. Daniel records it. That the king was humbled and when he was finally restored... He said this, and it's a completely different tone. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. God will do whatever it takes. He's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Perhaps the, no one has expressed the more the, the essence of defiance toward God, like William Ernest Henley in his poem, Invictus. Remember uh, Timothy McVeigh, Oklahoma City bombing? His final written statement before he was executed was this poem, Invictus. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's the one that ends, I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. Friends, that may be the motto of this world. But it most certainly is not to be the mindset of those who are following Jesus. Friends, it's going to be humility one way or the other. It's, it's either going to happen now in this life where you are humble before the King of Kings and you're believing in him. Or you're, it's guaranteed to happen in the future. Because it's written, Philippians chapter 2, that one day every knee will bow before Jesus, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because one day everyone will see Jesus for who he really is. King of kings, Lord of lords. It's going to be humility one way or the other. Why not go humbleness now before God? Well, James is addressing it and saying, you know what? We've got a little heart issue. It's called arrogance, and it's evil. So verse 17, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is is sin it misses the mark this is not what god intended he intended for you and i to know him love him trust him and to follow him you know when we uh what he's addressing here is what's called the sins of omission so you have the sins of commission sins of commission are like doing what god tells you not to do god tells you not to do it and you're like eh, and you do it anyway sins of omission is not doing what god tells us to do in this case, he wants it to be perfectly clear we're to be seeking the will of God actively. And when you and I don't do that, that's called a sin of omission. You didn't do what God has told you to do precisely. In essence, what happens is you're kind of telling God, you know what, um, I know what you want me to do, but I know better, okay? <laughs> I know better. I really actually know more than you do. That's, that's really how it comes across to God. And we're like, yeah, I see it. It's right there in the text. I'm supposed to seek your will. But that's not popular with the folks I work with. No one in school's doing that. I don't run in circles with people thinking that way. 
I will look weird if I say, you know, I'm interested in God's will or Lord willing. So what? Who is it that you're serving? He says, you know the right thing to do and you don't do it. He says, it is sin. And friends, the reason we do that is because we want to retain some sort of self-autonomy. We're willing to delay we're like, well, you know what? I'll, I'll start tomorrow or next week or next year. The new year, I'm really going to be God's man or God's woman, right? It doesn't work that way. What happens when we start crossing moral lines? We get involved in illegal activity. We're acting out in anger or lust or pride. Friends, when we're not seeking God's will, we're putting ourselves in a dangerous situation. With our kids, our little kids, we have this uh, principle. We try to get them to follow. And we just say, when do we obey? And the response is right away. I, they were here in first service. I had to do it twice, but they got it the second time. Okay? When do we obey? Right away. Not, not tomorrow. Not in an hour. Not when I feel like it. When do we obey? Right away. Well, that's what God wants in our life. But when we delay, delay, like Paul Tripp said, is really just disobedience in a tuxedo. Oh, it looks fancy, but it is disobedience. What happens, by the way, to Christians who deliberately disobey the known will of God. What happens? Um, maybe some of us can just share from firsthand experience. I'll tell you. One, there is correction from God our Father. You see, if you are truly a Christian, that means you're a part of the family of God. Your heavenly Father, just like an earthly father, will bring discipline to your life when you disregard and disobey. In fact, if you're actively sinning and you don't have any chastening from God, any discipline, I got news for you. You may not actually be a Christian because he promises. You might want to look this up. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. I'll give you verse 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. That's just like earthly parents, just like our heavenly father. And well, what does it look like? Like the Holy Spirit brings a sense of conviction. It's like, whoa, I have done wrong. And, and I mean, I feel this like if I've done something like, whoa, this is heavy. And God got my attention. God sometimes brings people into your life to address issues. Like, where did you come from? Hey, we need to talk. What you're doing here, can you explain some of your behavior with this gal or what you're doing here? And uh, sometimes God just brings divinely orchestrated circumstances that absolutely gets our attention. So you're out there just doing your own thing and acting out in your own pride. And finally, God brings some circumstances and you might get knocked backward. And it might be like a two by four hitting you in the center of the head. But all of a sudden, God's got your attention. That's how he works. If you want a biblical example on this, just look at a guy by the name of Jonah. He's got a book that he wrote, four chapters. It's worth reading. Because God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. Yeah, there's some real bad people there, but they need to know me. And you tell them to repent. Like, no. Jonah's like, not doing it. In fact, I've got a vacation plan, God. I'm heading off to Tarshish. I'm going the opposite direction. And he leaves. Jonah is an example of God dealing with the disobedient people of his own. And he addresses it. And I can assure you, he can do the same in our life. Let me tell you something else that happens when we deliberately disobey the known will of God. There's a loss of earthly joy. The problem is, you see, you're going against the grain of God's desires. And it's really not well with your soul. Why? Because you're sinning. It explains this just turning and, ugh, I feel terrible. What's going on? Well, God's getting your attention. There's some discipline. It's just all meant, all this guilt, it's meant to bring you back to the Savior, to trust in Him. Let me tell you one other thing that happens when you deliberately disobey God's known will. You lose heavenly reward. 
you lose future influence, you lose recognition for faithfulness, however God's going to do that, but it's clear in Scripture there is reward for faithfulness, seeking and working in God's will. And so what we do is we say, Lord, I want your will. Prone to be real self-centered, but I want what you want. Please give me your wisdom in this matter and help me to know and live in your will. And friends, it is so good. I mean, think of it. Get a vision of just living and walking and knowing God's will. And some of us, you, like, you could give testimony. This is the way to live. When you're seeking God's will and walking in it, it gives you confidence. It gives you peace. There is gratitude. There's a lot of joy. And you learn to live graciously. You see, a Christ-centered perspective comes from seeing all of life related to him. And that's what God's will is for us. There is a woman by the name of Mary Leonard. Uh, she's made her entrance into heaven, but she lived in Louisville, Kentucky. She had an extremely rare disease called polymyositis. It's an inflammatory uh, disease of the tissue, and they, it just invades muscle. It has no known cause and no known cure. And Mary lived this way for years, but then it got critical. The... Uh, this disease started invading her heart. Her doctors told Mary, you have 24 to 48 hours to live. But despite being on hospice for 20 days, she was still doing fine. So they sent her to rehab for 51 more days, and they finally released her. In fact, she lived another additional year. But you go through something like that, and God has a way of really getting your attention on the things that are most important. And so she reflected on the changes that took place in her life. And this is what she wrote. I call myself an average Christian. I don't know exactly why God has done this for me, but I do know that life looks different now. And Mary offers five life lessons she learned through the ordeal. I'd like you to listen to them. One, know that prayer is powerful. Two, mend fences now. Don't wait. Mend them now. Listen to this third one. Release the reins of life to God. Has the idea of, Lord, I want, I want your will. I want you to do your work through me. So release the reins of life to the Lord and do it now. Four, know that God is able. He's more than able. And five, put your focus on what really matters. So friends, let's intentionally Pursue living for and in the will of God. For after all, a Christ-centered perspective comes from seeing all of life related to him. Let's pray. Lord, just like you, to put it so powerfully in your word, this truth that we are to seek you and your will. And for someone who has come here today, and this text confronts them in the very sin of prideful existence apart from you, would they just simply pray with me and say, God, you've got my full attention. And this morning I'm turning from myself and my sin, and I'm trusting in Jesus for save, to be the Savior of my sin and to be the Lord of my life. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to go your way. By virtue of the resurrection, I believe. And Lord, for all of us, it's been too much of our way. We really want your will. So God, make it a pattern in our life, Deo Valente, that we are seeking your will as we walk in your ways, and we do so for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.